I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. On today's episode, Gender, Your Guide. Isn't that nice? A couple of years ago, I was in my favorite coffee shop here in Seattle. I went there every morning, and the baristas there knew me pretty well, and I knew them. I knew that the really handsome one with a really handsome Cuban accent, I knew that he had a new boyfriend, and he was really excited about that, and I was excited for him. Then there was another barista who was gender nonconforming, and they made the best Americano I'd ever had. And they'd sometimes give me a fourth shot for free. You heard that right. I drink four shots. I'm a quad drinker. How do you think I get these episodes out every week? Anyhow, one morning I was standing in line in my favorite coffee shop, and there was this couple in front of me. And this couple, they were obviously new. They weren't regulars. And they were pretty chipper for two people who hadn't had coffee yet, let alone a a quadruple. And when they got their delicious coffee from this very talented barista, the man replied, why, thank you, young lady. And there was this pause, right? This brief but dramatic moment of silence. Then the barista said very deliberately and very slowly, I am a boy. Okay, now. I'm a people watcher. I really like watching scenes between people in public, but this was a little uncomfortable. I mean, my favorite barista, it was clear that they were not happy. And this couple was mortified. They had this look of befuddlement on their faces. And I was kind of mortified for them. I was mortified for everyone. But you know, I was really conflicted in that moment, you know, primarily because had I not been a regular at that coffee shop, I could have so easily made the same mistake. And remember, this was a couple of years ago before everyone was putting their preferred pronouns in their profiles. So later, the coffee shop owner put profiles and photos up prominently of all of the baristas along with their preferred pronouns on the counter, right? So you could see it when you placed your order. And I remember seeing that and thinking, you know, that's really helpful. Everyone should do that. And that's kind of what today's guest, Professor Lee Ayrton of Queen's University in Ontario, that's what they're here to talk about. Professor Ayrton is non-binary and wrote the book Gender, A Guide. It's a primer of sorts. It's intended to help us all navigate these situations. So not only can you avoid moments like this, but you can be an effective ally to your neighbors and friends and family and to strangers and know how to respect and honor people for who they really are. So without further ado, here is Professor Ayrton describing what it's like for people in the transgender community, non-binary people, and those who are gender non-conforming, what it's like for them navigating everyday interactions like the one I just described, but more specifically about an everyday decision that most of us take for granted, and that's which bathroom to choose. Well, I think your, your question's a good one to start off with because there's so much diversity underneath the transgender T, right? So there are a whole lot of transgender people um, who are men and who are women and who are visible as such by other people around them. And they may have um, a range of experiences with bathrooms. So um, in talking about my own experiences with bathrooms as sort of a visually androgynous and non-binary trans person, I just I like to make it clear that bathrooms can be an issue for trans people for different reasons. But my own issue with bathrooms is that folks look at me and they don't automatically know which one I belong to. <laughs> so which one I should be going into. Um, and just as a case study, I was just having uh, having some lunch today at a Chinese restaurant with some graduate students where I live. And And I noticed there was a sign for the men and the women. And I went downstairs only to realize that the only bathroom in the basement of the restaurant is the men's bathroom. 
So everybody who might have been watching, and people do, like as I illustrate in the book, we tend to notice who's going in and out of different bathrooms. I was thinking, well, when I come back all the way up these noisy stairs, uh, people are going to know that I went to the men's. <laughs> and uh, if they don't think that I'm that I'm a man, that might be an interesting problem. Um, but if I had been in the women's, I might have gone in there and surprised somebody in there who might have had a, a negative reaction. So this is just the kind of overthinking that I wouldn't necessarily say anguish um, all the time, like you said in the intro, but this is just the kind of overthinking and wondering and planning and pre-planning that can go into it for some of us when others aren't quite sure where we belong. Yeah, so maybe the word anguish is a bit hyperbolic. <laughs> it can be anguish for sure. Like it can be all kinds of, um, I mean, transgender people we know experience violence in bathrooms. Um, so it definitely anguish can be the word, but I think one of the wonderful things about 2018 is so much um, diversity under the T and the diverse experiences of transgender spectrum people are becoming more commonly known about, which is awesome. Right. And, you know, but I, I have a tendency to think about, so we think about, you know, anecdotes and things that we've seen. And I, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the cases that are in the news are the people who are confronted, right? And I, and I remember seeing a story recently here in the U.S. where someone was confronted in a bathroom mm -hmm. and I was just, it was just heartbreaking. And I thought, yeah. if I had to think about that every time I made the simple decision, if I'm going to be confronted and I'm going to end up on social media because some person's yelling at me, oh, some yeah. thing is yelling at me, like that would, that would be anguish for me. For sure. And you know. it definitely can be. I mean, we know funny things, not funny, haha, -ha, but sort of interesting things about how transgender people navigate public space because many of us know bathrooms are going to be a problem. And um, we know, for example, that there are elevated rates of kidney disease and bladder infection among transgender people. Uh, we know that people sometimes organize how they um, how they shop or how they access different spaces just because they know there will or will not be a bathroom that's accessible. And it's such like an everyday function. I mean, most most people don't leave their house and think, where am I going to go to the bathroom? But a lot of people do for different reasons. And for some trans people, it can be quite, um, quite a, a harmful thing to have to think about. Yeah, you know, I think the thing that stood out to me the most is just the amount of thinking mm -hmm. about other people. I mean, I couldn't care less about what other people think <laughs> at that moment <laughs> in my life, right? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But you have to consider and read other people's reactions and I just do. the stance. And so it was just, it was really interesting. It is a, it is a weird um, it's a weird and sometimes wonderful kind of literacy that a lot of transgender people develop, which is reading social situations through gender lens. And it, it often is used to keep ourselves safe, but especially um, if your line of work is something like mine, where I actually study gender and how it plays out in different um, educational contexts, honing that literacy of gender and how it plays out is actually a pretty powerful tool in my toolkit as a scholar. So it has its downsides and it also has like different kinds of strength that come out of that experience that can be really cool. Right. And, you know, so I, I didn't mean to stay on this topic <laughs> for, for this long, but it's really interesting to me because, you know, I just recorded a segment on public harassment or street harassment of women, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And there aren't many spaces that women can go to where they feel mm -hmm. the threat of that. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And so one of the things that we explored in this episode was there was some research done that says that, you know, the actual threat of violence or sexual assault is much higher than the actual risk. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? There's a mm -hmm. gap there. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I I guess I'm trying to ask this in the right way and trying to reconcile those two things. Right. Because I'm thinking of, you know, women when we see 
a man in a space or someone that we presume to be a man, Mm -hmm. there is a reaction because of what we experience in life as, Mm -hmm. as a person who is, who is not transphobic, who's not a bigot. I cannot guarantee that I wouldn't do a double take if right. I weren't certain. Do you know what I mean? For sure. I mean, if you aren't certain that someone is in the right place and you are, I mean, first of all, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of good reasons why women are worried about their safety. And there's a lot of ways that women know um, what to do and how to use public space and how to navigate things to keep themselves safe. It's also true that the idea that a lot of sexual violence happens from strangers, I mean, we know that that is not very statistically prevalent, right? So a lot of um, violence that happens to women happens in the context of intimate partner relationships and often interpart inter um, in the context of heterosexual inter like relationships between men and women, or in the home or with people you know. So the whole constellation of reasons why women fear different kinds of strangers in public place for gender and other reasons, I mean, that's very heavily influenced by a lot of narratives of stranger danger that also don't actually hold up to statistics about violence against women. So I think it's perfectly understandable why a lot of women feel um, concerned about the idea that men would want to come into their spaces. But I think that when you know statistically that the people in your spaces are women and they know that they are supposed to be there, and when you know that actually transgender women face incredible amounts of violence and transgender people face a lot of violent incidents in accessing facilities that match our gender identity, statistically, there just isn't a comparison. But but I get it in the moment, it's hard to be like, oh, well, statistics, this isn't a thing that's happening. Like, that's not very comforting when you're worried. But in my book, in Gender Your Guide, I give a lot of very practical sort of immediate interaction level tips that you can use to kind of recognize that you have done a double take at someone for example, who you think might not be in the right washroom and then to catch yourself and to say, huh, well, that's not my call, right? This, this is a person who's in this space because this is the right place for her. Um, and I now know that if I turn around and do a huge double take and make it very clear that I am, I am behaving as though this person isn't correctly in the right place or isn't welcome here, that I'm actually part of the problem of making the gender categories very rigid, for people who that doesn't work for very well. So there's things you can do when you catch yourself doing a double take. And one of those things can be to just move on and keep on using the space and doing what you're doing and then move on with your day. And that's actually really what I would call a gender friendly practice when you have noticed that you've done a double take at somebody. Yeah. You know, just to be clear, you know, I am not one of those people who thinks that there's a there's a real risk, you know, of transgender or non-binary folks in the bathroom. That's that's not me. You know, I know that there is no risk, right? But, you know, being fresh off of this other conversation about, you know, public harassment of women, you know, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a woman who, you know, may have a heightened sense of fear in public spaces, right? And, you know, what might happen, you know, even if it's unintentional, I've, I've personally never done it or have that happen to me, but I, I've witnessed it, you know, and it's kind of uncomfortable to, to watch that go down, right? Which is, which is why I think this book is, is really important. Well, I mean, I think you're pointing out something really important is that we all are always like on background, sort of trying to figure out gender of people around us. And we usually only notice ourselves noticing that we're doing that um, once someone has sort of stood out to us. So in the book, I use a lot of that language of when someone stands out to you, this is probably why. And now what can you do to reduce the impact of them standing out? And how can you not participate in uh, making gender more rigid in that exact moment? And that's the kind of stuff that listeners will find in the book. So you mentioned that we're all gender experts. What did you mean by that? 
Yeah. So um, chapter two is actually called, I believe it's called Naming Your Gender Expertise. And I'm glad you asked about that because that's one of the biggest I think innovations about the book and the, the kind of one of the ways that I try to call in every single reader, no matter who you are, because this actually isn't a book for transgender people, right? This is a book for people um, of all gender identities and all gender expressions, and particularly for people who haven't thought about trans people or trans issues much before. And what I try to ask people to do in the book, and there's all kinds of sort of thought experiments and questions and things to think with, is to try to see the ways in your own life where gender, when it's been very rigid, has actually not worked out very well for you. Um, so what are times and places when you have been left out of something or told that something wasn't for you, but you really liked it, or people sort of gave you different kinds of signals that you weren't behaving or you weren't dressing or you weren't taking an interest in precisely the right things? And, and how did that impact you? And what did that feel like? Right. So another example I teach with is um, when I think we think about children in elementary school. And we know now that um, the ways that children sort of govern themselves and their social relationships has a lot to do with navigating these invisible rules around gender, right? Around what's okay for boys or what's not okay for boys and for girls and vice versa. And so when I invite my reader to name their own gender expertise, I'm asking you to come in and walk alongside me through a couple of different stories and realize that you have a lot of stories of what happened when gender was very rigid and when gender didn't work um, for you, right? when it didn't allow you to do things you wanted or to have desires you wanted or to participate in things you wanted to participate in. And so I, I firmly believe, and I've seen this in my own teaching practice, that if people can begin to name and to identify the way that gender has worked in their life and everything that they know about that and how that works and how they've navigated it and made changes to sort of respond when people have called them out in different ways, you can actually begin to see how rigid ways of doing gender are kind of alive in your own spaces and you can think, huh, how might that go if somebody comes here who isn't doing gender the way that we expect? And then you can begin to make some change. Yeah, you know, those exercises were really helpful in your book. And what Good. really helped me was thinking about it in the context of gender and race, right? Mm -hmm. I can recall certain, mm -hmm. you know, times in my life where I was probably participating in something or doing something that wasn't expected of me mm -hmm. as not only a girl or a woman, mm -hmm. but also as a black person. I mean, mm -hmm. for instance, I play classical piano all of my life. Mm -hmm. And that's not something you typically see black people doing. <laughs> and so, you know, I can recall, you know, certain instances in my life where people question that and tried to push me towards jazz or something like that. Sure. And, um, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm really, I'm grateful to you for making that parallel. And of course, not, there is no e easy, simple parallel um, between things like gender and things like race. But I think, what, what's very interesting to me about the moment of you telling that story to me is when you you made a bit of a joke, right? Like you said you don't people don't usually think of black people um, playing the piano or playing classical piano. And then you laughed. And what's interesting to me is that in a way you were inviting my laughter um, yeah. by initiating that. And that is a, an interesting thing to do because and I, I'm familiar with that in some ways as a trans person, because there are ways in which staging other people's expectations of me, I can smooth that over using different kinds of humor when I'm sort of in control of the conversation. And uh, I was very, as someone who thinks a lot about this stuff, like when you're telling that story, I was very interested in not laughing and not having a kind of reaction because um, one of the things I talk about in the book is not telling someone who they are by accident, which also means not telling them who they aren't. 
So if you were to tell me you played piano, I don't know what I would, how I would react, but I'd work pretty hard not to react at all. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really, really fascinating because one of the things I've noticed, and I, I didn't intend for this interview to go in this direct direction. No, let's, let's, go, let's go. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you, that you noticed that about me because I did not recognize the fact that I laugh when I'm mm. uncomfortable until I started doing the podcast. Mm. Right. And I hear my own voice. Mm-hmm. And so it just, <laughs> and I and like just now I just laughed. I don't know why I laughed. Right. And so it's possible that there's something in those interactions in my past that, that make me uncomfortable about people telling me or trying to tell me who mm-hmm. they think I am or who I should be. Perhaps. And so that discomfort, you know, invites laughter And so, you know, and then, of course, I I hadn't thought about it this way that, you know, we react in a way that we want, I guess you're saying other people to mirror, right? Mm -hmm. You, I want to make the conversation lighter for the other person because race Mm -hmm. and gender and class and all this kind of stuff, you know, those are very heavy topics. They are. Yeah. And also, like, if you if you as the person who's in control of the narrative there and you're talking to me about that and you're telling me that this isn't something that people expect, if you who you are telling the story, if you laugh, then you are the person who's producing that interaction is something that is sort of um, ironic or, or humorous. And that is a lighter, perhaps a lighter experience for you, maybe than waiting to see what I do, you know, so. That's also, I, I would, I, when I do certain things like that for me around gender stuff, it can often be like a bit of a, a bit of like a self-care mechanism in a way. Like, yeah. I know this is going to be a thing that isn't going to be, isn't going to get like the reaction I need. So I'm going to, where I'm going to massage this situation a bit. So it does like, I'm going to teach you how I want you to react. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And another interesting exercise in your book, you were talking about going into spaces that you're familiar with um, mm-hmm. and imagining what it would be like if the person that you're interacting with mm-hmm. did not behave in a way that was expected for the gender that you noticed. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking I, I went into my in my in my imagination, <laughs> I went into my favorite mm-hmm. coffee shop and I thought about the baristas who were female or the baristas who were male you know, from what I could observe and what, how they would change their behavior that would not align with my expectations. And what I thought about the the women was that they would smile less and they would, they would laugh less. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that that's a, that's a burden that I think that, you know, our culture puts on women and, you know, not on men. Those are those expectations mm. that keep gender rigid. That's true. A lot. Uh, there's a whole like set of expectations that kind of are intelligible to each other in different places. Um, but they often can be also very local. I mean, if you if your coffee shop, for example, is in a place where um, we're in a context where people used smiling um, and used laughter in different ways, then it would look different. But it would still these differences do register how gender and other things play out. But you can also think about. What would happen if you um, wildly changed? I don't. I, I don't. I can't see you. I don't know um, what your gender expression is like. But if you made changes like that and you went about your day in the same spaces, um, how do you think that might affect other people's reactions to you? Um, which is always an interesting thought experiment and really kind of wakes you up to whether and to what extent gender is rigid and whether there's tolerance there for people changing what they do or people being outside of others' expectations. Yeah. So you also talk about gender as a process and not a fact, right? Mm-hmm. 
which I think is really interesting. So before I read this, I would have thought that my identity as a cisgender person, as a as, you know someone who's always gone by the pronoun she, that that was a fact, right? And mm. now I understand it differently. So what does gender as a process look like? What does that mean? Sure. Well, I think in your example, um, I think that when I mean process, I mean, there's different ways in which we come to know ourselves. And we come to be able to say certain things about ourselves, right? So in your case, I'm sure when you were little, you didn't wander around saying I'm cisgender. (laughs) Um, Probably not, right? Most of us, most of us don't do that. And that's, that's fine. Um, But when I say gender is process, I'm talking about the fact that we all have a way of being socialized, of having different kinds of experiences of people being affirming of different things we try or different things we say, and I guess I would say um, disaffirming of other things that we try and things that we say. We know um, that we have, obviously, everybody gets receives a sex assignment when they're born, but we also know that a lot of different things diverge in terms of how people relate to babies and infants, the volume of the speech, the frequency and intensity of physical touch. When kids get a little bit older, we have some research on um, the enthusiasm and the persistence of play when adults play or show interest in a child's activities, even if, um, and that's usually based on the perceived gender of a child or an infant. Um, In the book, I talk about how in one study, people attributed sort of gender binary characteristics to infants' cries when the infant was at a stage where there was actually no difference between cries based on sex. So there's, and that would, of course, um, hook up with how people think about the infant and think about its emotions and think about its needs and what it's saying, and they attribute these qualities to it. So by thinking about gender as a process, we're hooking into a whole body of research that shows that gender socialization actually really is a process, right? You go from an infant with particular external um, bodily characteristics, and along the way, most of us end up becoming able to say of ourselves, I am a boy, I am a girl, and some of us neither. And that's not just a fact about a person. That is actually an achievement of a whole process of socialization and engaging with other people. Yeah. So as a society, what are some other ways that we kind of perpetuate this process of keeping gender rigid? Oh, geez, a whole lot. <laughs> oh, just I know that there's a lot. I don't know. What are the top sure. three? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I talk in the book about keeping the big two gender categories rigid, intact, and separate. It's kind of a phrase I use all over the place. So I kind of, for the purposes of the book, I sort things into sort of assign male and boy and man on the one hand and assign female and girl and woman on the other with the idea that those are just going to follow logically in one of those boxes and people are going to stay in that box and that that box is going to look similar and being in it is going to look similar for everyone. So I talk a lot about in the book how when gender is rigid, it doesn't only harm people who are transgender at different points and in different ways throughout our lives, but it also harms everyone to some degree, right, to greater and lesser degrees. Like, for example, there's um, a lot of different um, ways that women's body hair that that there's sort of quite rigid rules around that. So women often give each other, but not only women, um, different kinds of cues about how much hair their body should have, how it should be groomed, where it is acceptable to have hair and where it isn't acceptable to have hair. But women's bodies grow hair um, in all kinds of places and to very different degrees. But if we have a rigid idea of what a hairy or hairless body should look like in the woman box, then there's a lot of people for whom their body hair grows more 
right? It grows more than what's usually allowable for people who are in that box. And so being called into question and standing out for that and receiving different kinds of um, discipline or different kinds of put downs or hints or suggestions that what you're doing isn't right, or you should be doing something else or like getting more of a wax or like you shouldn't have any stubble or like you should have this shape of eyebrow. I mean, that is very, can be very wearing over time. It can lead to a lot of self-doubt. It can lead to things like, um, sort of policing your own appearance and having like different levels of self-esteem. And these things, of course, all tie up with things like race and racialization too, right? I mean, not everybody is a person who has very light and fair body hair. So all of these things for me come back to the idea in part of a rigid two-box system. And in the book, I just try to call everyone's attention to the fact that we often participate in maintaining those boundaries like woman hair, not woman hair, woman body hair, not woman hair through the everyday interactions that we don't think about very much, but that we can actually start to and that we can start to opt out of. So you ask a question in the book, you pose a question. I think it was, you know, why are there transgender people? And I, I don't remember what your conclusion was, but I think mm-hmm. that I think basically it wasn't we don't know scientifically. We don't mm-hmm. we don't have a definitive answer. We have many, many um, answers. <laughs> or many answers, right? And I just thought and, and I think your answer was why not? Sure. Or just because um, we are? <laughs> sure. No, yeah, that's pretty much it, actually. We we have many, many different ways in which human beings form knowledge. We have many different academic disciplines, and in each academic discipline there is a gender conversation. And there's often several gender conversations. So Whenever anyone definitively tells me that this is a true thing about why people are this way, why people are men, why people are women, why people are transgender or not, um, and often that knowledge is just used to try to erase um, trans people and people get really certain about it, I hear someone talking about one particular disciplinary knowledge base and one particular way of knowing, when in fact... We know that there have been people who today we might call transgender across cultures and across time. So I don't begin with parsing out debates about why I exist, why people like me are here. Um, I begin with the truth that we are. And now what do we do now that more and more of us are saying, hey, this is me. This is my deal. And this is my whole life. So you talked about how you'd negotiate your role in relation to gender when you were a child, you know, within Mm -hmm. peer groups. And that, you know, made me think about, you know, even our games are gendered. Like one of the Mm -hmm. examples that you gave was boys chasing girls. (laughs) I hadn't actually even thought about that. Right. I remember doing that. (laughs) Yeah, it's a classic. So, I mean, it's hard to quantify this, but if you if you could, you know, how much of your emotional energy as a child was dedicated to this role playing or trying to negotiate your role? Um, I think, I think that what I'd say is that a lot of every child's emotional energy is going towards figuring out what the rules are for them in this particular classroom, in this particular friend circle, in this particular room or classroom or school or whatever, or or after school program, like what do boys do here? What do girls do here? What kind of behavior is going to make me stand out? What's going to make me cool? What's going to make me someone who's accepted? What's going to make me someone who's not accepted? And that has a tremendous amount to do with gender. And so when I say that everyone's a gender expert, like I said before, uh, what I'm asking people to do is to start to make visible how much of our all of everyone's emotional energy, particularly as children, but not always or not only, but how much of everyone's emotional energy goes into monitoring that. So it's not only trans children, whether they articulate that about themselves 
themselves at the time or not, who have to think a lot about like, oh, like, who do I sit next to or what am I going to wear or what's okay? Like, have you ever seen a kid have like a meltdown over a particular kind of T-shirt or not shirt or wearing a dress or not wearing that particular kind of dress? I mean, a lot of kids have preferences like that. And those preferences line up with different anxieties that every child has about gender and about fitting in. So I can't quantify how much time I spent thinking about that as a kid, but I think that if we scratch the surface, we're going to find that a lot of the anxieties that children have about gender are things that are shared by trans and non-trans children or, or children who are very gender conforming and children who are gender non-conforming. I mean, it takes energy for everyone to participate in the system, not only for people like me. That That's true. And I and I went through one of those meltdowns. I, it pretty much happens <laughs> every day with my, with my kid. Mm. Um, but I remember you remind me of a, a situation where I remember he wanted a backpack. Mm. And he picked out this backpack that, you know, I, I don't choose these things for him. He picked out one that was kind of this iridescent pink because he really liked it because it was really shiny. Mm-hmm. Right? And... I I tried very hard not to react because if he saw a reaction on my face, mm. he might think like, why is she reacting that way? Should mm-hmm. I not choose this backpack? Because typically, and this isn't this has nothing to do with anything that I've done, I don't think, but he typically tries to shy away from things or colors that he thinks are girly. These mm-hmm. are his words, which he probably picks up from television and cartoons or other kids. He also picks that up from seeing what happens to kids who are boys who don't shy away from those colors. Yeah, that's true. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, he was so happy. I let him buy the backpack and I, I didn't say anything about the color. Right. Mm-hmm. Good for you. And as soon as he walked out, someone walked by and said, like, oh, do you see her really cute backpack? <laughs> She's got a really <laughs> cute backpack. He, di- he didn't hear that. But anyway, if he had heard it, I, you know, I wonder what his reaction would have been. And he has but, the backpack yeah. now? Oh, yes. He, he uses this all the time. He stores like um, Nerf bullets in it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Does he does he take it with him when he wanders about in the world? He still takes it with him. And he. he what are his backpack stories? Uh, what are his back? What are his backpack stories? Mm-hmm. Like what? What kinds of things do happen or what kinds of things does he hear? And I don't just mean bad things. I mean, how do other people relate to the fact that that they maybe think he's a girl or they because because there is a backpack story, right? That's what I'm getting at. Um, He will there will be things that occur because he's he has chosen an object that is gender nonconforming for that particular time and place. So I wonder what I wonder what is happening, like what kinds of kinds of conversations is he having because he's not having none. (laughs) Yeah, That's well, sure. you know, actually, I he hasn't he hasn't told me any stories, right? I think it's just that one. <laughs> yeah, no one said anything. He's just, you know, he, you know, puts his rocks in it and his bullets. <laughs> And, you know, his Nerf guns in it and that's it. And no that's one's sweet. actually sending anything to my knowledge. So, mm. you know, it's really interesting. Um, well, I wouldn't be so silly as to say you should put like a microphone on him. But um, it is <laughs> it's like when we when we do things that step outside of the box that we are in or that people perceive us as, then th- that has consequences and not necessarily bad ones, but consequences nonetheless. So it's a pretty, like for people like me who like, this is who I am and I'm not necessarily immediately visible as either a man or a woman, which is good because I'm neither one of those things. But um, most people expect that that's how the world's going to appear to them. And so to, like, I know there are ways which would make me far less visible in the world. There are things that I could do with my dress and my grooming and my my demeanor and all these different things that up to my gender expression. I know the ways in which I break the rules of all these categories, but um, and I, I know what I could do exactly to make myself less visible. But that would be a very, very unhealthy 
and very um, unacceptable choice for me in terms of my own well-being because it wouldn't be who I am. But we all yeah. know what we could do to change it up. Yeah, it was change it up. So, but was there some point in your life where you said enough, you know, I'm just going to, where you were, you know, I'm assuming when you were younger, it was harder to, you know, be confident in, you know, just being exactly who you were. Was there a point where you just said, you know what, I don't really care what other people think? Well, when I was five, I told my mom I wanted to cut my hair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I did. I had beautiful, beautiful long brown hair. I looked like baby Judy Garland. And I was like, enough, <laughs> enough. And so my mom's great. So I got this very strange haircut with uh, short with ear flaps. Um, very odd. And uh, it looked like it was very 80s. Um, and that was a thing. And then I think um, I think that for me, I've always known about myself in different ways and to different degrees that I was able to articulate it. I always knew that girl wasn't for me. And I had ideas that if girl wasn't, then boy must be. But I've also always known on some level that boy also isn't for me. And as I trace my own life history, um, I see what many, many folks like me um, see is a persistent thread going throughout of not being this, but also not being the other one. And I'm very happy that I luckily became a young adult in a world where it was becoming more knowable um, that there are non-binary people. Even if that may not be the word we've always used, there is a way of life and a gender identity that is that is real and that is viable and that has a lot of historical rootedness that is for people who just are not men or women, who are not in either one of those boxes. So for a lot of us, and I, I write about this in the book when I talk about coming to know myself as non-binary, there is sort of a persistent push against the different ways that we are buffeted. So often if you are kind of masculine, but you're not assigned male at birth, um, there's different ways in which you can experience pressure to um, within trans communities, for example, to, especially when you're younger, to transition in a way that would lead you into a transgender man or boy pathway um, or trans guy pathway. And that's that's the kind of thing that, you know, that's a kind of peer pressure itself. But that's not nearly as much of a problem as the incredible pressure visited upon all of us to conform with the gender that matches our assigned sex. So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of pushback, I think, that happens in sort of the life stories of non-binary people in terms of how we come to know ourselves as this. But um, yeah, I don't think there was one aha moment for me. I think it was a constant ebb and flow and a trickle of a trickle of discomfort with all the things that I was being told I had to be at any given time. What's your advice for people who may get it wrong? Right. You know, sure. they go in and they misgender someone and they're corrected. What 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 should they do? What should they do? That's great. That's a great question. I love practical questions. Um, so what I say to people, and this this actually, this tip comes from my friend and colleague, Lex Canelli, who said it very beautifully. Lex is one of the linguists who I, who sort of walk beside me and offer linguistic knowledge through some parts of the book. And Lex said something that I think is very eloquent and accurate, which is that you have two chances to get it right. And those are both okay until you get going. So your first chance is to not make a mistake, but your second chance to get it right is when, is when you realize that you have made a mistake. So maybe you realize and someone hasn't really corrected you. And we don't always correct other people because that could be extremely exhausting. It can open us up to unwanted conversations and sometimes it can jeopardize our safety. So we don't always correct people. But even if you don't get corrected, if you notice you made a mistake, all you have to do is say, sorry, they are talking on the radio right now and move on, right? Sorry, rephrase, 
move on, right? Don't take it up as an opportunity to have a big old conversation about gender and grammar. <laughs> Don't take it up as like, this is some kind of Q and a, you know, um, same thing if someone does correct you, right? It's like, actually they're, they is my pronoun. You just say, sorry, rephrase and move on just quick and neutral and very much in the vein of, okay, thank you for that information. Um, let us keep going. Because the bigger of a deal that that response is, the less likely I am to correct you in the future. And if I if I don't correct you out of a fear or concern that it's going to be a really big deal, then chances are we might not get to know each other as well as we might want to. You know, you might not get to hang out or develop that connection or grow that network with each other. And the best thing that can happen is for people to um, to actually have that opportunity. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, the use of pronouns, I think we talked about here, and I'm glad you talk in the book about grammar, because that's one of the things that, you know, people mention as a barrier to them for using the correct pronoun. But, you know, I think that's personally, I think that's a bit of a cop out. Because mm -hmm. if you if you live in a fairly progressive place, first of all, you understand somewhat what the rules are. And, you know, people are willing to, to help you, to teach you. But if you insist that, well, you know, that's not grammatically correct, so I can't mm -hmm. do it. I mean, mm -hmm. I just think that that's just, you know, saying that I don't I don't want to expend the energy yeah. to do what's right because I don't think it's important. Well. You know? I think um, my experience with the grammar argument, and that's, I actually have a series of arguments in Gender Your Guide that I debunk that are against what I call making gender friendly changes. And the first one I talk about is the grammar argument, because what I notice is, and I'll, I'll get to the grammatical correctness in a moment of singular they, but what I notice about grammar people is often when someone articulates a very sort of like strident or insistent um, position that like, well, it's not grammatically correct. What I often notice is those are folks who who are very, very, um, who consider themselves to be very literate, very literary. Like those are the the readers and the self-identified grammarians and maybe people who, who write well and who consider themselves to be sort of very um, highly literate, often in very sort of standard English. And those folks, I feel, are in a moment where they are coping with a struggle, right? They're, they're, they're having to make a shift because using singular they um, for someone you know is new for many people. Um, we, we are fluent users of singular they for someone we don't know. But the, the shift is to use it for someone who we do. So when they're called on to do that, it is understandably awkward at the beginning, and feeling awkward with speaking English is something that a lot of grammar objectors have not felt before because they've always felt so comfortable and so literate in their speech. So when I encounter someone who's very stridently doing the grammar thing, what I tried is to make a connection with them about the difficulty of making the change and to talk and explore a bit about what it's like to feel uncomfortable speaking English for maybe the first time in their entire life. But I, I find that usually with time and with conversation, Grammar arguments recede, especially when people receive sort of accurate information about linguistics and about singular they and how it's already in our language. So yeah, grammar arguments tend to recede with time, um, is my experience. So the holidays are coming, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if a family happens to have a trans child in their family, and, you know, often they'll have, you know, extended relatives or family who may be older and who may do some things that make everyone uncomfortable. What is your advice for parents to help kids navigate experiences with relatives? Mm -hmm. 
Thank you for that question. Um, I had precisely that kind of experience in mind when I wrote one of the last chapters of the book. So there's a lot of information there on strategizing with and supporting and standing beside a transgender family member, particularly a lot of examples in there for parents of children. So that kind of scenario of knowing that there's a family member or family situation that is perhaps like um, anywhere from hostile to um, to just to just not knowing but having a, a harmful impact. There's all kinds of support in there um, in the book for dealing with that situation. And what I like to um, what I like to advise parents to do is to think about setting a proactive and also very gentle boundary with a family member who you have a pretty good hunch is not going to react supportively to either your child's gender expression or appearance if that has changed, um, or if your child is going to be out and say like, well, this is, I am a trans person, blah, blah, blah. Because often a lot of us sort of may encounter our families in ways different than we do in our everyday lives because those relationships can, um, can be challenging. But I think so what, what I suggest to parents and I have sort of I even have a bit of a script for this in the book is just to sit down and spend some time and cultivate and sort of rewarm that relationship with someone um, so that there is a connection because often we don't see extended family for a long period of time. But to do this kind of work before and then to share this information with the consent and with sort of the planning of, of your kid to share this information and just let that family member know what your priority is and what the boundary is. And that your primary responsibility is toward your child, but that your family member is welcome to ask you questions and they are welcome to um, share their views with you, but you will not be having a space where that kind of, um, that any kind of, um, I guess I could say fallout is going to touch down on your kid. So what I find with doing that proactive approach is it, it provides a space where somebody can feel like they're being heard. So their views are being aired. Um, it provides a space where the relationship is reaffirmed because it is, right? I mean, we all have family members who we love and care about and we might not see eye to eye, but the relationship is important. We are going to spend this time together, but this, this is a boundary which will not be crossed. So if you can't come along with me into that, then this has to be my priority because I'm a parent. So there's, again, there's lots of advice for having that conversation in the book, and I hope it's helpful. Well, Dr. Lee Ayrton, thank you so much for writing this book. It's really, really important. And, you know, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor. Please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen and, and subscribe. Those two things are immensely valuable to the podcast world. It boosts the podcast visibility so that other people can discover the electorate and subscribe. And when that happens, that allows me to further invest in bringing you better content and more frequent episodes. So again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, keep up the good fight.
Thank you.